Thank you for listening to Spiritual Teachings with Shunyamurti, recorded live at the Sat Yoga Ashram in Costa Rica. To join us for a life-changing meditation retreat, or to make a donation to support this transformational work, please visit our website, www.satyoga.org. To access more teachings or guided meditations from Shunyamurti, please visit the members section of our website or our YouTube channel, Sat Yoga Institute. Namaste. Welcome to everyone to this special satsang. Welcome especially to our visitors. Caro is here. Don Rodrigo is here. His son Juanra is here. I remember him. And our special guest, uh, Jacques Sagot, is here. It's a great joy to welcome you for the first time to this a humble ashram, and uh, although we are humble and few in number, we are planning a world takeover. <laughs> oh, sh I shouldn't have mentioned it. Through artistic renaissance and a raising of intelligence to the level of divine power so that we can right all the wrongs and create a new world order based on goodness, truth, beauty, and divine love. So all who are aboard, uh, I think more and more there will be a great desire uh, for a new way of living and of being that is in harmony with the cosmos and with nature and with life and without the conflict, the wars, the catastrophes that are human uh, initiated and uh, triggered that are uh, now plaguing literally our, our human, our planet and destroying life, life itself, not simply uh, threatening the extinction of the human species. I just happened to um, check the news headlines before coming. Apparently, the next Russo-Turkish war has begun in earnest, earnest this afternoon uh, with a massive uh, airstrike uh, killing many, many Turkish soldiers who, for some reason, were in Syria. Uh, we have the coronavirus officially in California and other parts of the U.S. and is now uh, semi-officially a global pandemic. And we have a stock market crash, and uh, we have many, many other catastrophes, too many for them to even put on a, a news site any longer, uh, and exponentially increasing every day. And thus, we understand the urgent need for a rise in human intelligence and love and understanding and a, a, a way of reorganizing our world such that the kind of uh, competitive and destructive savagery that is now going on will cease and a new way of living that is in accord with our divine nature can be reinstated. And that's the reason for the day that is now a three-day holiday at the least, uh, Intergalactic Rose Day, which is tomorrow,
And somehow, coincidentally, uh, Radama's birthday is also tomorrow. I don't know how that happened. Uh, but uh, it, now it needs a contextualization, and so we need another day for that. And of course, there's a play that wouldn't fit in uh, tomorrow's schedule, so that will be the, the third and uh, culminating, perhaps, uh, night of uh, this uh, holiday. But who knows, maybe it'll become a week-long festival of the arts, and we never know, but it uh, seems to be expanding every year. So it's important to understand that the contextual uh, issue is a very broad one. It's not simply about a holiday that this ashram happens to be celebrating, but it is, it is about the nature of the, the cosmic situation we are in. By the way, yesterday morning at about 2.30 a.m. when I was meditating and uh, looking out the window of my office, I happened to see in the sky a strange light going sideways that you know, stars don't normally do, and, and it was just going right across. So I got up and looked in the sky, and it went to a particular point and, and disappeared, but there was a blinking light before it did, and then another one. As soon as it reached that point, another. there were seven. And, and, and a final uh, big blink as they all seem to go off in a mothership in another direction. So I gather that that's also part of Rose Day and uh, that we are uh, being uh, signaled that uh, we may have some other uh, co contributions to this extraordinary holiday in future. And, uh, and I've had other signs as well that I won't uh, go into now that uh, contact is uh, in a very public and formal way is not far in the future. So we have many exciting things happening on planet Earth and in this ashram. Uh, but it's also important to understand the, the shadow side of the, the world situation. And I think it's important to put it into a, an archetypal context. At the end of Kali Yuga, which is uh, the way that this uh, historic epic is known in uh, traditional uh, Indian uh, teleological historiography, uh, this, uh, this time period is the time of the deepest darkness. And at the end of this time period, all goodness disappears from the planet. And I think most of us recognize that we no longer live in a good world. We no longer trust the goodness of people or of institutions, governments. Uh, we don't think the air is good to breathe most of the places. The food isn't so good for you. Nothing is good, either in a, a sense of the, uh, the, the, the lack of contamination, et cetera, but, but moral goodness has pretty much disappeared. We live in a, an immoral, globalized civilization 
that has deliberately let go of all the traditional values of nobility and truth-telling and all of that. So disinformation. It's even legal in, for the US government to lie in public. It used to be they would do it, but it was not legal to do it. Now it is actually legal. So you have a, uh, a fall of, uh, of values, of trust, and, and therefore of a sense of security that, that, that uh, humans will not act like wolves and, uh, and, and other predators toward one another. And so uh, that, that sense of the, of the goodness of people has, has turned into a very sinister paranoia uh, about the violent crime and, and the other uh, types of betrayals that go on in the world at every level. And so we have lost, the way that the, the Indian philosophy puts it is, we have lost the right to goodness at the end of Kali Yuga. We have lost the right to live in a good world because uh, those who are living in it have themselves lost their goodness. And therefore the world uh, that they live in will reflect that lack of goodness. Secondly, they say that what will become clear is that there is a, a loss of intelligence in the world, that the world will no longer produce intelligent leaders or statesmen or, uh, or intelligent, even, even in science and technology. We have seen a, a collapse of, uh, of the, the scientific genius. It's no longer producing the kind of insights and, and paradigm shifts and revolutions that Thomas Kuhn wrote about 50 or 60 years ago that was the engine of scientific creativity. We don't see that anymore, and we don't see any longer uh, the technological developments, there, there are now, there's now a plateau, and in fact, even uh, in some areas, a loss of capacity, and, and a loss of the attention uh, span of, of workers in these very high-tech areas that demand complete concentration for hours on end, for years on end but the attention deficit disorder that has become pandemic in the world has, uh, has caused the, uh, the capacity of the operators of this very fragile uh, social web and network of high-tech industries and nuclear reactors and, and military and, uh, and other kind of uh, in industrial plants that are very dangerous to, to have many accidents, some sabotage, of course, but, but many breakdowns. And this is also increasing exponentially. And very, very little intelligence any longer in the field of the arts or philosophy or uh, of any of the humanities that we used to depend upon for our inspiration and moral guidance, et cetera. So that lack of intelligence uh, has shown up as a complete corruption of the university system around the world, uh, being bought up by the corporate powers and being uh, simply a, a money-raising uh, industry as well. 
So the, the very desire to develop that, that genius that used to be a part of the, the human spirit has been dumbed down and uh, almost eliminated. Then you have the third one, which is probably most relevant to Rose Day, which is that we live in a world that's no longer beautiful. Even Costa Rica with its famed beaches no longer have the beauty they once had. Too much garbage, too many uh, ugly hotels, uh, too many uh, tourists taking selfies on the beach and, and having orgies and other kinds of things. A degraded scene and no longer what it used to be. But of course, that's the whole world. The beauty of the world has almost disappeared. Even the beauty of human beings is literally not what it used to be. And the, the beauty of the arts. Uh, in fact, beauty was pretty much jettisoned as even a, an ideal in modern art. Once Marcel Duchamp brought the first urinal into uh, the museum, I forget which one it was, uh, I think it was Museum of Modern Art uh, in New York. Well, that, that pretty much signaled where art was headed. And it's, it's, that's, that was already a high point, and it's gone way down from there. I don't think I need to belabor that point. So a beauty in itself, and I want to focus more on beauty tonight because we want a renaissance of beauty. And it's important to know what beauty is. I'm sure Jacques has uh, some deep insights, perhaps even far deeper than I have thought about the subject, since that's his field of beautiful music. But I, I think it's important to approach beauty from a, an intercultural uh, philosophical perspective to understand why it has fallen the way it has. But it's no, it's no longer interesting to live in a world in which there is no beauty. And, uh, and that is also a cause for great depression in the world. And when beauty and intelligence and goodness are all lost, <clears throat> then what you have is an epidemic of depression and of suicide, which we are seeing in the world. That people who no longer have a, a vision to live out, uh, an ideal to follow, because even the religious organizations have been corrupted and stained by a scandal, et cetera. So they're, they're the, the world, which is basically hegemonically indoctrinated into materialist atheism anyway, uh, no longer has the ability to even uh, attempt to reach uh, to transcendent levels of beauty and of, of truth and of goodness. And so the world is uh, collapsing into a state of nihilism. This, of course, has been going on since before Nietzsche, but now it has reached a critical levels of negative energy so that there's a subconscious desire of the collectivity to end it all, which is far more dangerous than simply having you know, Trump at the helm in the US or, or some, some figurehead like that. But the, the fact that the collective is, uh, it wants to, uh, to end their misery and it can't be done in a, a way which enables life to proceed because the capitalist system won't allow that. The, uh, the inherent uh, tension and conflict 
between the 99% and the 1% as it's now vulgarly referred to is uh, creating that kind of a, uh, uh, a self-sabotage that results in passive aggressive symptoms of illness that, that are all actually political statements and uh, of uh, uh, even futile revolts and uh, forms of uh, disengagement and anomie from society and turning inward to very superficial forms of narcissism rather than, than having any kind of collective organizational effort toward the betterment of our world. It's been given up on and uh, the only movements really that are, are uh, catching on to some extent are those like an extinction rebellion, which begin with that very idea that extinction is close at hand. And it is, it is that kind of a, uh, a theme and a tone that now has, has captured the, uh, the understanding and the, uh, the, uh, probably made very bitter the hearts of uh, the multitude. So now we're in a situation where we can no longer depend on health in the world. I think this coronavirus pandemic is, is perhaps the first uh, of the, the full-on uh, plagues uh, that are destroying uh, human health. But of course, this has been going on uh, in a uh, subterranean way as we have been studying because of the electromagnetic fields, the, everyone who's using their cell phones are damaging their brains, which will show up in a certain number of years uh, and uh, will have uh, effects on, uh, on everyone. But, uh, but even more than that, just the, the inorganic food and the kinds of, of ways that people are now living in congested cities and in the uh, situations in which a disease becomes ripe and, and rife throughout uh, is, is going to produce many more uh, pandemics than just the current one. So we have, we were living in a world in which humans are losing their health rapidly and cannot depend on that health remaining stable, even though we pride ourselves on longer lifespans, et cetera. But those statistics uh, are false and they don't factor in the, the car crashes and the, the suicides and the overdoses and all of the other ways that life is cut short. But health itself as a, a standard that people could depend on, as well as the medical institutions, the hospitals, et cetera, will soon be overloaded and, and are already pretty inefficient to take care of people. And the allopathic system isn't really about health. Again, it's about profit and it's about uh, doing very high tech kind of uh, operations but not about preventive health, not about the, the ways that, that disease can be eliminated, but only, only ways that uh, body parts can be lopped off in order to increase uh, one's lifespan when one has a disease. It's, it's a pretty vulgar and primitive form of medicine that is now being practiced. So uh, as, as we begin to lose the health, the next one begins to come in.
And it's already happening that the human population is collectively losing its sanity, literally. There is more uh, uh, psychiatrically diagnosed uh, psychosis than ever before. But we could say the social system has become psychotic, the system itself. And the people who get ahead in the system are psychopathic in general. That, that means without conscience and without values and without interest in intellectual development, but only in the brute power that money and military uh, and, uh, and, and gains of, uh, of, of prestige can offer. So these kinds of, um, of insanity are now spreading uh, through the world because the ego structure of human beings today is more fragile, uh, more dissociated, more um, prone to meltdown than ever before. And so we have people even here who are meditating, who have uh, emotional breakdowns, at least of a minor kind, every few days. Uh, th this, this kind of behavior is, is now the norm. We have to keep meditating just to tread water, and that's here. What's going on out there, you know? Uh, this is a much higher than, uh, than, than normal or average level of intelligence and uh, I would say uh, uh, sane makeup of people who have made uh, commitment to a higher kind of life. And yet the instability uh, is, uh, is very difficult to overcome because of the type of ego structure and the tenacious resistance there is against transcending the ego. And if we don't figure out a psychotechnology to get beyond the ego soon, then uh, we're not going to have a renaissance in this ashram either. It's going to collapse the same way it's happening out there. But my hope is that we are going to rise to the occasion and transcend the ego here. But so far, more people here are interested in chakra two affairs than they are in reaching chakra seven. And so the, uh, the, the state of the ashram is not good in that regard. And uh, if we continue at the, the rate that we are, then this project too is going to fail. So uh, we need to be very realistic about it. I, I am not at all uh, uh, over-optimistic about uh, the possibility of our own success, given the uh, the, the type of uh, resistances that we've seen over a long period of time. And the ego is, uh, is incorrigible to such a, an extreme extent that it will do anything to hold on to its pseudo-autonomy, but it does that uh, at the expense of being able to sustain coherence. And as things get worse and the ego is becoming more uh, fragile, more fractured internally, more in conflict with itself, uh, what happens is that it becomes very easily destabilized by simple interactions that, that are unpleasant. Let alone people, let's say, smoking cannabis or taking uh, more powerful substances. These things can actually destabilize and bring psychotic breaks. It's no longer uh, a joke 
to, to take these kinds of substances. They can easily initiate paranoia and schizophrenia and reactions that are, uh, are permanently disabling. People think that it's a high and it's fun and all of that, but I think that the, uh, the cannabis legalization is actually going to backfire because people are not using it therapeutically, let alone shamanically, but they're, they're using it simply to try to evade the subconscious uh, negative superego self-attacks and, uh, and try to get into a space in which they can feel high but it also makes the subconscious, uh, the, the sensor barrier permeable to exactly those uh, negative energies and uh, uh, thought forms that can be extremely self-destructive. So we have to understand that all of these things are happening and there is a psychic contamination that occurs. Everyone is affected by everyone else's insanity and it tends to create a morphogenetic field of ever greater movement towards psychosis and toward violence and toward suicide, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we have uh, a, a difficult situation that's becoming exponentially more difficult and we should not take our sanity for granted. Uh, even if you feel extremely stable, and I don't think most people do, but even if you do, if you are not stable at a level beyond the ego, it's not going to remain stable for very long. Uh, the karma will catch up with everyone as the, uh, the, the vibrational frequencies of Kali Yuga become ever more negative and people out there more hopeless and, uh, and, and uh, motivated by the lower death drive. So beyond uh, the loss of sanity, uh, well, sixth one is the loss of life, of course. <clears throat> Literally, we are witnessing whole nations being destroyed that will never uh, return. And uh, whole areas, geographical areas of the world that are unlivable whether due to radiation, like the Chernobyl area in Ukraine, or, or Fukushima in Japan, or so many others. But, uh, but literally, we are reaching a point where they're, they're, the, the life itself uh, on Earth will, will become uh, a thing of the past, except for very small groups that will remain after the nuclear conflagrations that are not that far in the future. So, uh, th and then the final one that will go, of course, uh, is consciousness itself. Uh, what else do people have? What is the real wealth that, that we enjoy? It's consciousness. This is the reason why people don't want to die. They're really, they don't want to lose consciousness. It's a terror. But, uh, but be beyond death, you actually don't lose consciousness. But beyond the final death at the end of Kali Yuga, if you haven't gotten out of your ego, there will be a literal end, a rupture of consciousness. Uh, and uh, it will... 
it, it will culminate in bardo states that people, people, souls, consciousnesses will enter after the death of the physical body that the Tibetan Buddhists know all about uh, that are actually very accurate even though portrayed in terms of uh, medieval Tibetan mythology, but, but they will be uh, equivalent types of situations that will literally tear apart the ego, destroy it, and end it uh, in a dream state after death that that is just as real as this waking dream state in life and uh, and and bring it to uh, to an end <clears throat> it won't be the end of life there will be a new beginning but all, most of all of the souls who are here now will not be part of it unless they have gotten to the vibrational frequency that will have continuity of consciousness so these things may or may not interest you or be important to you. But if you're not at that vibrational frequency, you're not going to get to the party. And, uh, and the party will happen. <clears throat> the Renaissance will take place. But uh, whether it takes place on this planet or somewhere else is another question. And that's our karma of whether we deserve it or not. And we have to take responsibility for being the ones who are worthy, who, are, who become Aryans again. Arya meaning noble and divine and turned into angels before the destruction. It's only that that will enable us to return as avatars. But without doing the inner work now, it won't happen. This is the last uh, uh, little uh, margin that is offered as a window of opportunity for transformation. And then things will become way too chaotic to be able to sit and meditate or have satsangs like we're doing now. This kind of a gathering is a luxury. And, uh, and it's not a luxury that can happen in most parts of the world or in which people will tell you the truth the way it really is. And so the, the, the capacity for uh, the transformational process to complete itself is also running out. And, uh, and that is also what we are losing the right to. So the, this is the situation we face. And how do we proceed? We, have to, we can't get these back through any direct efforts. But we can, by becoming models, embodiments of goodness, intelligence, and beauty that are connected to the source of the creative power that gave life to this planet in the first place, we can become, again, uh, transmitters. In the same way that art was always, at least in the West, an attempt to transmit the archetype of beauty into the world uh, as a representation of that which uh, could not be expressed uh, in, some, uh, in some kind of discourse. So let's go to the issue of beauty. Uh, Purusha, could you erase that? Uh, I want, to, I want to start with beauty because uh, I think beauty represents that kind of intelligence that actually has more of a charge for people than, than the more abstract levels of intelligence that download, uh, let's say, conceptualizations of 
the, uh, the way that the infinite uh, power of the mind of God can function to alter and ameliorate uh, difficulties in the phenomenal plane. The, the, the question of beauty has always been one of those uh, cultural, uh, let's say, um, pillars that uh, have, uh, have offered visions of the higher truth that could not be expressed or even believed in without the, uh, the, the, the overwhelming model of a great work of art, whether it's Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel or it's an incredible Greek sculpture of Zeus or, or a, a Renaissance sculpture of David or, or, or of Moses with horns of light or whatever it is. That those overwhelming pieces would trigger a, a re response of the soul and the heart to that, that beauty that would uh, instill a kind of revolu revelationary and revolutionary uh, reaction that would uh, give a, a new lease on life to the spirit that wants to unfold in uh, all human beings to become uh, embodiments of beauty and of the intelligence that can transmit beauty. So let's look at it a little bit because if we understand the history of the very concept of beauty as it developed transculturally, it can help us to understand why we, we fell uh, the way we have and have lost beauty in the same way that we have lost goodness. You remember at a recent retreat, we talked about the fall that happened just between Plato and Aristotle. Plato defining the good as the one, the, the, that transcendent goodness. Uh, uh, he wouldn't use the word God, but of that supreme uh, being that gave forth the supreme noose or mind, and then uh, the uh, blueprint for a world. Uh, that good. Uh, Aristotle then said, well, what good is that good? We can't reach it, we can't apply it. Instead, give me a good pair of pliers, give me a good meal, you know, give me a good uh, lute that I can play. He wanted a more pragmatic version of goodness. And it's the Aristotelian model of the good thing that I can use that became uh, the, uh, the, the aegis of goodness, the emblem, rather than the, the good of the, the supreme being whose goodness was uh, beyond the reach of an ego. And having fallen into ego consciousness, one could only have some uh, idealistic aspiration, but not a realistic sense that one could embody the good in that sense. Of course, the Platonists continued. The Neoplatonists said, no, Aristotle, you're wrong. And Plotinus wrote his Aeneads famously uh, downloading more information from the good. And it went on through Proclus and uh, even uh, uh, Dennis the Areopagite, uh, Dionysius the Areopagite, as he's usually called, who, who uh, brought Platonism back into Christianity and saved it just by a hair. But it still, we have lost that actual uh, desire 
to contemplate the good and embody it in the way that was always imagined was the duty of philosophers and of, of all beings who love wisdom. So the, there are three main aesthetic philosophies. Uh, let's, uh, let's call it the Vedic, the Greek, and the Chinese that were at the beginning of Kali Yuga. Of course, before all three of these, and all three of these are, are Aryan in uh, a technical sense, but all of these, of course, are, uh, are later legacy fallen civilizations uh, uh, that uh, did not participate in the earlier renaissances of ancient Egypt that had already disappeared, and the ancient Greeks got a tiny bit from them, but more from, uh, from India. And of course, there was Iran that developed and split off gradually from India, and the Zoroastrian culture developed. But it had basically the same aesthetic uh, um, sense. But uh, the relationship between these three have, have, been, have caused a very interesting uh, context now for the, this globalized world that we're in. <clears throat> the Greeks uh, did take their idea of beauty from the Indian sages. And the, the word for uh, the beautiful was to kalon. Now, interesting what the Greeks did the, uh, was to say, not only are things beautiful, but there is the beautiful. This was Plato's idea. There are beautiful forms in the world of forms, a dimension of consciousness that is transcendent of the world. And what we see in the world are imitations of those platonic forms or archetypes, to use the Jungian term. So there, there, there is beauty and there is the beautiful. And for the Greeks, the attempt was to represent the beautiful in works of art. So art became a form of representation. And it, it was uh, uh, an effort to try to bring the beautiful within the capacity for um, sensuous perception to be able to directly encounter. And the word for sensuous perception, of course, is uh, aesthesis. So we have aesthetics that became uh, the, the, the form of philosophy that was the theory of art. But it's not really art. It's simply five senses perception. But real beauty was originally not about what the five senses could perceive, but only what could be perceived with the third eye, with the transcendent contemplative consciousness encountering the mind of the good, the one, the supreme being. And so what happened was the Greeks let go of that. And, uh, and if you look at the word kalon, they got it from the Vedic uh, tradition. And it comes directly from a word we all know, which is kalyan. Now, if you look at a Sanskrit dictionary, one of the meanings of kalyan is beauty. But it, it, it's in the reference to a beautiful soul, 
a beautiful soul is one who is generous. And so the idea of the beautiful for the Greeks became divine generosity, generosity that would pour forth to the world as a cornucopia of rich insights. And later, Immanuel Kant was to say that, the, uh, that, that art is the expression of an aesthetic idea. And what he meant was an idea that was so rich in insight and implication and hyperdimensional meaningfulness that it could not be expressed in concepts, in language, in discourse. It had to be expressed in a work of art that was, uh, that was something that, uh, that could not be, uh, be thought about. It was an idea, but an idea that transcended the ability to think. It could only be. And there's a famous poem by Archibald MacLeish called Ars Poetica, which ends with the line, a poem should not mean but be, okay? That's actually that idea of being rather than, um, than meaning is one that the Greeks opposed, however, because the Greeks want to be able to know what the work means, what it represents to us. They want to be able to translate it into thought, into philosophical language. So they always uh, emphasized, and, and the entire Western uh, canon has emphasized the cognitive aspect of what is art saying to us, rather than what is art in itself. And a lot of that comes from the fact that these cultures, both the Vedic and the Greek, uh, are formed around epics. Uh, the, Greek, the Vedic, of course, the Mahabharata, which gives the ancient understanding of Satyuga, and then later the Ramayana that expresses uh, the Treta Yuga uh, psychology, etc. And in, Greeks, uh, in the Greek society, of course, you have the, the Olympian mythology, and you have Homer, the Iliad, the Odyssey, etc. So you have the, the, this literate culture that forms around the, these epics that uh, contain a discourse. In the Middle East, you have the epic of Gilgamesh, etc. In China, there is no epic. There was never an ancient Chinese epic. Uh, they went directly to the understanding of the Tao. I shouldn't even say the understanding of the Tao. They went to the Tao. So here, you, what the Chinese did was take not Kalyan, but the higher form of beauty, Sundaram. Sundaram is not the, the beauty that you can see or that you can put into a work of art. It's the beauty of God. It's the beauty that the Sundaram became in English, the sun, the light itself, that, that is so strong that it blinds you. It doesn't create vision. In a way, it takes away the vision of the phenomenal plane. It washes that out and gives you a supernal light that is what is behind and pervading this world, but that is not in it. It is the mind of the dreamer, not the dream any longer. It is a different level of beauty. Well, for the Chinese, the Tao is that. 
It, it is the way that that transcendent and ultimate intelligence and beauty and goodness all in one uh, manifest in the world. And so the artist is not someone transmitting a representation from the plane of forms into the world and creating some perfect form. No, it's a direct transmission of the energy of the Tao that goes into the painting. There's no intermediary of a thinker, of an artist trying to produce a, an image of uh, Mount Fuji or, or of uh, some, some uh, landscape or some, uh, some king or queen or whatever. It wasn't, it wasn't or, or let alone a religious painting of Christ on the cross or, or whatever else. It was an intention of directly expressing the energy of life, of consciousness. And so you would have very little on the page. Most was left to the imagination. There, there was uh, uh, only a few little lines of ink to represent perhaps a waterfall or a mountain or the mist uh, of, of the gorge. It was, it was all uh, really left to one's imagination because the beauty was not a phenomenal beauty. The Tao was expressing something that could only really appear as nothingness, but not a nihilistic nothingness, but of the potency uh, that was prior to being that would express itself as becoming. And, and, and the work of art would directly be uh, inscribing the, the truth of the Tao. So you have a very different approach, one very intellectual by the Greeks and the other uh, just a direct, uh, non-mentalized process of expression. And in the Vedic culture, you had both of these levels of beauty that were operating. One for the human uh, level of consciousness to create a beautiful world, and the other, the recognition that if we are not in alignment with that transcendent beauty, we cannot sustain the beauty of the world. And thus in Vedic culture, there were always beings, as Plato also recommended in the Republic, uh, that there would be beings who were guardians, who didn't participate in the activities of the world, but were the philosopher kings. In India, they weren't allowed to be the kings. They were the Brahmins and the yogis who lived outside of the social order but inspired it. And uh, like the prophets in ancient Israel offered vetoes to kings making unwise decisions and that kind of thing. But they had no actual power nor wanted it. But they were able to bring in a message of truth and of beauty and, and of that uh, sustenance of the world that can only come from a source that is not contaminated by the world's entropic processes and its inherent fall into darker and darker ages. So the beauty was used as a protective barrier to keep society alive to the higher ideals and in China to the Tao. But the Tao uh, became misunderstood even by the Chinese writers. I think the last real Taoist was Zhuangzi. And uh, many don't realize that Zhuangzi disagreed with Lao Tzu. 
they, the, the, uh, most people think of Taoism as uh, what's written in the Tao Te Ching, but uh, Zhuang Tzu's version of the Tao was totally different. He said Lao Tzu was wrong because Lao Tzu expressed that the Tao, that uh, the real Tao it cannot be named. The, the real Tao is the Tao that is beyond the ability to grasp. And, and Zhuang Tzu said, that's saying too much. You, you can't even say that there is a Tao beyond our ability to grasp. You have to be at that point that you are the Tao that can't be grasped. But if you try to talk about it or mentalize about it, you've already fallen into theoretical nonsense. And, and that's the beginning of the end. If you turn the, the, the Tao into a concept, like in the West, turning God into a concept, soon people won't believe in it. And if you've said to, at the beginning that you can't grasp it and the real Tao isn't a Tao you can be named, then you can be sure that the name Tao will then refer to what is not the Tao. And this indeed happened, and the Taoist religion is very anti-Tao and, uh, and very much a, a religious institution, uh, just as imaginary as all the other religions. So we have a, a problem that Chinese uh, philosophy lost its own roots in that immediate realization. Uh, they tried to, to renew it with Zen. The Zen Buddhists said, don't talk to me about Buddhist theory or ontology or any of that. You know, uh, just get real. And they would slap each other around and, you know, scream and, and, and do whatever was necessary to get somebody to be present. But they didn't give them discourses like I'm unfortunately doing to try to get people to think their way out of the paper bag of the ego. They brought them there through brute force. But that stopped working also after a while. And there weren't any more Zen masters who had the legitimate authority to slap you around. And so they turned to Zen riddles, koans, that pretty soon became uh, useless because people would read cheat books, you know, with sound of one hand clapping. Ah, okay, and uh, and it lost its capacity to awaken the intellect to that which is transcendent to discourse. So the world has fallen under the oppressive uh, control of language and language under the oppressive control of those who manage the signifiers of the big other and, uh, and gradually indoctrinate people into a lower and lower ways of understanding what is real. And because the real itself is inherently beyond understanding anyway, the real can only be grokked through a, an instantaneous letting go of the ego. There is no other way to know what is real because the ego is an imaginary picture of the world that people choose to live in. And it's only when that picture is shattered that someone will get real. That usually happens only in moments of trauma. But now the whole world is facing a planetary trauma that is going to shake everyone out of their comfortable picture of the world. 
But whether one goes psychotic or becomes enlightened and liberated will be determined by whether your attitude is one of seeking that which is beyond the capacity of the mind to be able to reach and, uh, and unite with or whether your mind is in the gutter of wanting things uh, of a bodily nature and a sensual and, uh, and a, a temporary and uh, unreal nature. So if you haven't made the decision as to where your uh, profit lies as all the, the other profitable investments fall away, and you haven't invested in God consciousness, you may find yourself bankrupt and, and too insane to put yourself together again like Humpty Dumpty was. And that's the world that we are now entering and in its final phase before the omega point. If we can awaken enough of us to that higher level of consciousness and bring it in, we can make use of the same principles of the morphogenetic field to create a global awakening. But if we do not take uh, the bull by the horns, to use a Zen expression, then we are not going to be able to be of any help to anyone else. And we are going to need uh, all the medication we can get ourselves. So the, uh, the only hope is to uh, break free of the chains of the ego and the belief that you are a bodily person and realize the sundaram, that is the infinite beauty that has the power to redream a beautiful world. But you cannot do that without breaking free of the lower level of intelligence of the ego that tells you, no, it can't be true, it's woo-woo, it's, uh, it's mysticism, it's this or that, or I'm not worthy of it, or et cetera, et cetera. All the, the resistances of the ego that we all know about, and I won't elaborate now, but the, if we don't break through this now, that opportunity will pass us by. And uh, nothing short of liberation of consciousness completely from the ego will be of any avail in, uh, to face the kind of uh, apocalyptic events that are in our near future. So uh, my hope is that we will use our yearning for beauty, the ultimate beauty, and yearning for the highest infinite intelligence that we can download if we uh, organize ourselves to concentrate sufficiently to do so and to break free of these negative and nihilistic paradigms that have taken over the, the minds and hearts of the human species. And uh, because time is short, uh, both tonight and in the world, I, I'm, want, I'm going to leave it there, but I, I'm hoping that uh, all of you will be inspired to make extra efforts to, uh, to discipline yourselves. Dao is the Chinese equivalent of the Sanskrit word Dharma. Dharma is not a set of rules, even though it's interpreted that way, and generally by the ego, but it's a set of self-disciplines, ascesis, as the Greeks called it, asceticism, as that has become known later. But it's the practice of 
that concentration of consciousness into single-minded and wholehearted union with its source, such that it becomes our natural state, a sahaja samadhi, a state of natural and ongoing and undisturbed God consciousness that can be transmitted and shared. And we make our whole life into a work of art. And then once again, our cosmos into a work of art. And there are artists from other parts of the cosmos who are coming to assist us in this transfiguration if we are not too paranoid and too psychotic to make use of that help. But the responsibility for reaching that level is for each of us to take for ourselves. For our own sake, for the sake of the world, for the sake of our infinite destiny and eternity beyond this life, and for the sake of that ultimate goodness in which we all participate. Namaste. Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Teachings with Shunyamurti podcast. For more information on programs and retreats, click on the calendar section of our website, www.satyoga.org. Our work is made possible by the generous support of our listeners, viewers, and members. To make a donation, please visit the donate page of our website. We thank you for your support in our mission to share this timeless wisdom with the world. Namaste.